What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, December 3rd, 2021, and happy Hanukkah to all of our Jewish listeners out there. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Matty, it is going so well over here. Happy Hanukkah to everyone out there. And also, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Let me be the first to wish you a happy post-Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. You are, in fact, the first to wish me that, and uh, hopefully for the listeners as well. <laughs> Matt, did you eat your fill? I ate plenty, and more importantly, I ate leftovers. I had stuffing for like three days straight. I had plenty of mashed potatoes. Uh, Kaylee's <laughs> brother made mac and cheese. So yeah, I was, I was feeling good and uh, feeling light. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you know what's funny? I never have had mac and cheese at my Thanksgiving. My aunt just does not make it. And you know what? I don't even expect it anymore. I'm fine with it. It's okay. Hey, that's all right. I'm, I'm a big mac and cheese guy. I made it for the first time a couple of years ago for Thanksgiving. It was a hit. And now, I don't know. I just kind of, I grew to expect it. My family never used to do mac and cheese. So I started, I started making it myself and now it's kind of my claim to fame. But yeah, this year Kaylee's brother was on Mac duty and he did a fantastic job. Great job, Kaylee's brother. Love it. Um, also, a reminder, last week we dropped a six-minute episode with some really exciting updates coming to TPT. So if you didn't have a chance to listen, please check it out. And with that, let's get into the show. Planet Today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly, for now, podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we kick things off, if you haven't already, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help the show get some more visibility. If it's something you've done already, if it's something you haven't done already, go do it. Helps us a lot. Yes, please. Please, please, please. All right. So our first quick hit comes from Bloomberg Green, where Ayn Quinn writes, cow feed that cleans potent methane burps nears Europe rollout. The EU's food watchdog determined that a product from a Dutch nutrition company known as Royal DSMNV is safe and effective for dairy cattle. One quick caveat, it wasn't asked to decide what a safe level of the product is for beef cattle, but they did determine that it's safe and effective. The product's called Bovear, and it's already been approved for beef and dairy cows, sheep and goats in Chile and Brazil. And that's important because Brazil is a major beef consumer. Bovear is a food stock that can cut methane emissions by 30% when added to what the cows are eating. And this is huge, proven to be safe and effective over time because methane is more potent than CO2 and meat produces far more methane than other proteins like nuts, soy, stuff like that. Um, And beef produces the most methane out of any of the meats. So from here, the European Commission will have to approve the European Food Safety Authority's decision before Bovear is rolled out, 
which is going to take about six months. And some more exciting news, Bovear is awaiting approval in New Zealand and the United States as well. Wow. Yeah, this is huge and super cool that they could reduce methane through feed. I don't know how they could have even measured that, um, but this is absolutely massive. If we can get you know most of, of the world's cows on this feed, uh, it could change the atmosphere completely. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of times when we talk about reducing our footprints, you know, something that I do is I don't eat red meat. And I know a lot of our listeners are probably in the same boat or they're vegetarian or they're vegan. But this is something where if the methane can get reduced, some people might not have to make as much of a personal choice there. And, you know, for me, I wasn't a big beef guy to begin with. So it wasn't this huge sacrifice. But I guarantee there's people out there that are like, God, I love steak. I just want to eat steak all the time. And they don't do it for environmental <laughs> reasons. So, and maybe not, but you know, this could change that where they could eat some steak guilt-free every once in a while. Yeah, it's huge. And you know, now your buddy doesn't have to feel so bad about going to a Texas roadhouse and getting a 40 ounce steak, you know, <laughs> but let's not be, let's not, uh, you know, lower our efforts to reducing our beef intake yet. Let's make sure it gets approved in the U S before we do that. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing for now. And even if it does get approved, probably keep doing it because, you know, it's still going to be requiring a ton of land, a ton of water for beef production. But less methane is going to be a win if and when that gets approved. Um, this also reminds me of how using seaweed in cattle feed can reduce the methane production. And I'm pretty sure my friend John has a friend who's doing research on this or works in that industry. So, John, I'm going to check in with you and uh, maybe we can try to get your buddy on the pod next year. Yes, that'd be fantastic. All right. So next one is from Kara Buckley of the New York Times, and it's titled, These Americans are just going around in circles. It helps the climate. There are some awesome photos and videos in here by AJ Mast, and it's definitely worth the click just to get a visual of what's actually going on in this article. Um, and also, I am such a sucker for roundabouts. Like they're the most efficient way to navigate traffic. And now I know they're more climate friendly. And also, I just found the videos in the article so oddly satisfying to watch. Like there's no lag. It's just smooth transitions in and it's out of just each intersection. Efficiency. <laughs> yeah. It's just like if you're like an efficiency head, if you love that, this is roundabouts are for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as someone who gets pretty anxious when I drive, just watching the smooth navigation, I was like, yes, this is the future that I need. <laughs> <laughs> So the article focuses on Carmel, Indiana, a city with 140 roundabouts and counting. They have about a dozen more that are in progress, um, and they only have a population of about 102,000 people. So Carmel is replacing more and more traffic lights with roundabouts, and the city is decorating them with hedges, the high school mascot, a fountain, other designs, all so they look nicer for the citizens and for people who are driving by. The city likes the roundabouts because they're significantly reducing injuries and deaths compared to traffic lights. And climate scientists like the roundabouts because cars don't sit idly at red lights and burn gasoline to do nothing. The article says there aren't many studies about it, but Carmel's former city engineer estimates they save about 20,000 gallons of gasoline each year. Yeah. And you know what it also stops is it stops your dad from going through the red light even though he thinks it's really, really, really safe, he made sure he checked a thousand times. <laughs> you don't want your dad doing that, and he's going to do it anyway, even if you say no. So this is awesome for that. And you know that they blatantly blow the red light and then just point up and go, you see that? It was yellow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dad, it's been red for five minutes. God. So another added benefit of roundabouts, they don't require electricity. So they keep running after storms cause power outages. 
And these are not to be confused with traffic circles, which cause cars to enter at a 90 degree angle. Roundabouts cause traffic to yield and enter at a smaller angle. Something I found very encouraging here is that roundabouts were encouraged and pursued by Carmel's Republican mayor, who also promised to uphold the Paris Climate Agreement after the previous administration pulled out. All of Carmel's city vehicles are either hybrid or run on biofuels, and Mayor Brainerd said we need to do everything we can about carbon emissions and the climate change issue. The article points to two studies in Mississippi that showed roundabouts lowered CO2 emissions by 56% at two roundabouts and between 16 to 59% at six other roundabouts. That's a big range for that second one. But look, even if it's the lowest part of that range, 16% is a solid reduction. And not everyone in Carmel likes the roundabouts. And former city engineer Mike McBride says this is because you can spit out fact-based data, but at the end of the day, most of the general population is scared of things that are new and different. Yeah, that that's a that's a great statement. And I think the only really thing that I, I would be concerned about with these is is the safety issue. Like are there more collisions? Are people being, you know, a little bit too aggressive in their merging and, and stuff like that? That's one thing as as a former bus driver, that's <laughs> one thing I would have a cause for concern for. So funny you mentioned that they did actually bring up the collision thing. Um, and what was interesting to me is the author of the article kind of broke down how cherry picking statistics to fit your narrative is super easy because there was an Indianapolis star investigation and it claimed that mayor Brainerd was wrong by saying that roundabouts are safer because collision rates have actually increased since they started installing more of the roundabouts. Mayor Brainerd mentioned that the star did not account for Carmel's population quadrupling since he took office and started transitioning to more roundabouts. So to back up his claims, the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety found that crashes resulting in injuries were reduced by nearly half at 64 roundabouts in Carmel and even more at some of the more elaborate intersections. So, yeah, I mean, they seem pretty safe. And yes, there are more collisions and more just injuries because of car accidents due to this. But when you factor in the population and booming and going up by four times what it was, the rate of collisions is much, much lower. Yeah. And I think, I think this guy, Mike uh, McBride is, is completely right. People are afraid of new things and also they need to get used to it. Like, you know, maybe they're not as, I don't know. I like when I go driving, I might hit one roundabout every, you know, 15 miles, if that, like if you're driving on like residential roads. So they're not, they're kind of rare right now. You know, they're not like insanely, it depends on where you're driving, but they're, they're kind of rare. Yeah. The Midwest is huge into roundabouts. Yeah, so exactly. Sorry to our Midwestern uh, listeners there. <laughs> this is a Northeast <laughs> podcast. All right. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but also not kidding. <laughs> yeah. Tell your friends in the Midwest, if they want us to stop being focused on our own regions, listen to the pod, complain, give us a five-star <laughs> review. And in that review say, I wish they talked more about the Midwest. Yeah. If you're, if you are a Midwest listener, I want you to directly contact me on Twitter and let me know. And then we'll, we'll circle back next week. All right. And contact me on Apple podcasts with a five-star <laughs> rating saying, Hey Matt. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to our next one here. And it is from Tori Van Oot of our friends over at Yahoo News, and she reports, Department of Interior report proposes raising cost of drilling on public lands. 
The Department of the Interior released an 18-page report last Friday stating that the current rates for oil and gas drilling are outdated. You can read the entire report if you'd like, which is linked in the first sentence of the Yahoo News article that we're using here. The federal royalty rate has not increased in 100 years and is much lower than, for example, Texas, which charges double the federal royalty rate. The report states that the current oil and gas leasing and permitting program fails to provide a fair return to taxpayers even before factoring in the resulting climate-related costs that must be borne by taxpayers. Something I found a little disappointing is that this is the only mention of climate in the entire report, aside from a paragraph in the introduction describing new stressors and opportunities for our public lands and waters, including, quote, addressing biodiversity loss, tackling climate change, and then they go on to mention renewables a little bit. So, you know, they're acknowledging climate, but not really explicitly getting into the data behind how much it costs the taxpayers down the road by not factoring in climate-related costs. Yeah, and it's like, it's, you can't really ignore, you can't talk about, you know, oil and gas drilling without talking about climate change and and the ecosystems and how much damage it does to them. Yeah, and unfortunately, by not changing that rate for 100 years, that's basically all we've been doing is ignoring it. So, you know, it's good that the Department of Interior is saying, it's time for change. And the report recommends increasing the 12.5% royalty rate that the government charges to match higher rates that private landowners and major oil and gas producing states charge, which is kind of a good thing because it will start to reflect the true cost of fossil fuels. It's not truly good because environmental groups are advocating for no more drilling on public lands, but this is what we're getting, I guess. And the issue here is that President Biden campaigned on ending drilling on federal lands. But with global gas prices as high as they are currently, people want solutions. The president announced last week a major oil release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And also, oil prices are declining right now, so gas should follow. But this kind of shows the tough situation between climate change mitigation and environmental protection versus what's best for Americans in the short term, with midterm elections coming up in less than a year. So my issue here is that the report fails to acknowledge estimates from the U.S. Geological Survey that states drilling on public land and federal water is responsible for almost a quarter of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So like I said, midterm elections are coming up in less than a year. Gas prices are high right now. And, you know, anyone who studies global economics is going to tell you the United States president is not responsible for gas prices, whether they are good or bad. But a lot of the general public in America either credits the president with low gas prices or blames them for high gas prices. So it kind of puts President Biden and his administration into a tough spot where, look, they want to get those gas prices lower, but also he campaigned on something that environmentalists are going to get behind, which is no more drilling on public lands. So I don't know. It's just kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, I guess. Yeah. It's like, it's like trying to appease everyone kind of, that's, that's what I feel like he's kind of doing right now. Yeah. And when you try to do that, it turns out that nobody's going to be happy. So for me, I would say, sure, the short term, it sucks that gas prices are high for people who drive a lot, but in the long run, we need to stop emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere. And if drilling on public lands and in federal waters is responsible for almost a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions, then that's something that we should stop. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and, and factoring in that and factoring in the externalities associated with carbon emissions would make it far more apparent how much drilling actually costs. 
both to the environment and to us. And another point that I think is something that we talked about a few weeks ago or maybe even a few months ago at this point, the cost of developing renewable energy on federal lands is much higher than drilling. And you tell me what has a better return for taxpayers and what has a lower impact on the climate through development. So if we're going to get our energy from these federal lands and from these federal waters, let's do it in a way that protects our undeveloped federal lands and the wildlife that lives there. Yeah, and and this goes back to uh, probably like a couple months ago at this point, but an episode we did on the after the spill. When you think about the taxpayers, they were forced to clean up the BP spill. Like they had to get on their hands and knees and use these crappy vacuums in order to, you know, pick up all the oil that BP spilled. So like you have to think, you have to consider the taxpayer and also just the wildlife and, and the atmosphere or the climate around it. Yeah, I mean, we're going to end up paying for it somehow, so I would rather not pay for it down the road when we have to reduce our carbon emissions by an even greater amount because something that is making up a quarter of our emissions is still getting prioritized. Yeah, it's frustrating. All right, so let's close out our quick hits with something hopeful. More Americans than ever understand climate change is real and harmful article was written by Sarah Ruiz Grossman of the Huffington Post. In 2010, 57% of Americans thought global warming was happening. Today, that number is up to 76%, according to the latest Yale University survey, against only 12% that believe it's not happening at all. 55% of people believe the U.S. is being harmed by climate change right now, which is also up big from 2010, where only 24% of people felt that way. Grossman also writes, for the first time since the group began these surveys in 2008, a majority of respondents, 54%, said that they have experienced the effects of global warming personally. And look, this may not seem like a big deal, but let's remember how reactive politics can be and how, unfortunately, climate science continues to be a big political issue. And when I say politics are reactive, An example that comes to mind for me is same-sex marriage, which many politicians openly opposed until polling data showed that the majority of Americans support the right for people to marry whoever they love. And that's when politicians in office started to shift for the most part. So by getting the public behind this, and look, I know that for listeners of this podcast, we can all kind of take a step back and say, the public understanding that climate change is real is like the public understanding that gravity is real. (laughs) I'm assuming the people who listen to this podcast are pretty pro-science and, you know, we're, we're up on this. But there's also a lot of people who don't listen to this podcast yet. And because of that and a multitude of other factors, they might not be as pro-science. So, you know, like this, this is a really big deal, especially when you factor in the U.S. being a major carbon emitter and a major player on the global stage. This kind of backing is going to be huge for state and local elections. Yeah, it's going to be massive. And when you say 54% of people that have actually experienced the effects, that's people who are, when they go to the polls, they're going to be taking that information and thinking about it in their mind when they're selecting the candidate that they are. Um, and that's that's huge. I think that's massive because um, if, you, if you're keeping that in mind over, oh, well, I want this candidate because he's going to let me keep more of my money or whatever... This is about, you know, your kids and and their kids. Like, I don't I can't imagine any dollar is more important than that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and also, 
you know, with 54% saying they're experiencing it now, it's not just about their kids. It's not just about their grandkids. A majority of people polled in this survey also say it's about me. Yeah. So on to some bad parts of this. Only 60% of people polled understand that global warming is mostly human caused, but this is also up from 46% in 2010. So baby steps there. And I mean, if we're going to be unsure about anything, I'm kind of okay with that one. You don't necessarily need to understand the cause to understand the effect is bad and that we have the power and technology to fix that cause. These numbers are also still divided along party lines quite a bit, with 72% of Democrats saying human activity contributes a great deal to climate change compared to 22% of Republicans. And that's an issue, but it's also worth noting, and this isn't something in the article, that younger people are more likely to understand the human-caused impacts of climate change. So with millennials on pace to be the largest voting demographic in 2024 and more Gen Zers turning 18 and getting to vote, my hope is that party affiliation becomes less and less important when we discuss climate change in politics. Could not agree more with that sentiment. I've never really understood the two-party system, and I don't like it. And with that, Matt, I'm taking us right into a mother-freaking break. Let's go! And after the break, we are going to be talking about December's documentary review, and it is episode one of Down to Earth with Zac Efron on Netflix. The presenting sponsor of the planet today is Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief. Wait, Matt, don't we usually start this off with a funny story or something? We do, but I kind of realized there's nothing funny about how seriously good Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is. <laughs> it's a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. You can build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. It's not funny, it's science. This ain't reality TV! Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And for December's documentary review, we watched episode one of Down to Earth with Zac Efron on Netflix. So let's talk about the show as a whole before we talk about the episode that we watched. Its website describes it as Zac Efron goes green as he travels the world in search of the secrets to good health, long life, and a higher level of eco-consciousness, but with a considerable dose of thrill-seeking and extreme adventures. Nick, had you seen this show before? You know what's funny? I had, um, and I th- I can't even remember what episode it was. I think it was the, yeah, I saw the Costa Rica one where they go ziplining. So I watched the whole first season when it came out last summer, and, you know, I, I liked it. I was definitely a fan of it. 
I like Zach Efron quite a bit. He seems like a cool dude. And I was also really impressed with the website for the show, which is down to earth, Um, because right up front, it tells you exactly who its sponsors are. And on the same page, it lists Zach's favorite down to earth charities while also saying which episodes that they're involved with. So if you like the show and a particular cause inspires you, you can go to the website and be one click away from that charity's donation page. I also want to add that some of the later episodes of the show have been criticized for not discussing climate and environmental justice. Um, And by seeking exotic experiences, it can kind of minimize the lived reality of the people and places that Zach and Darren visit at times. In other words, just to put it more simply, Zach and Darren are both white dudes and Zach isn't an expert in a lot of this stuff. So he kind of set out to learn and explore. And Darren is, he's just Darren. Yeah. Like he's, he's big into superfoods and stuff like that, but that doesn't make him a climate expert or anything. So it's kind of bro either way. Setting out to learn and explore is not in and of itself a bad thing, but either by avoiding or just not knowing about the environmental justice issues of each place that they visit, the show can be a bit colonialist. Yeah, I always consider Darren like uh, he's like a Costco Laird Hamilton, if you know who that is. He's like Costco (laughs) brand Laird Hamilton. Laird Hamilton's like a sweet surfer. He's like one of the best surfers of all time. Um, He's got like a superfood creamer, stuff like that. But yeah, I feel like they're very much the same person. Um, But yeah, this show is is interesting. And I can appreciate that Zach is just like trying to learn more about this stuff. And, and, um, I think that's great, but I think sometimes the show comes off as just like, it's like a duality. It's like, there's two things going, there's like two separate sides of the show. It's like, Hey, we're going to do this bit where we're like being funny. And then like, okay, here's something serious. Like, let's get into like a serious discussion. And I think it kind of just, it's like vanilla and chocolate, but in the worst ways. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's something to be said that's like, kind of good for when shows do that because it makes it a little bit easier to digest some of the tougher topics, which this episode didn't have, you know, as many things like that, but later episodes do get into, um, there's, there's an episode where they are in Puerto Rico, I believe right after a hurricane like decimates a a village and, you know, having episodes like this one, which are very lighthearted makes that, I guess, easier to digest, but like, that's not something that should be easier to digest. Like people yeah. lost their lives and their homes and that you, you should never be in a position where you're comfortable with that. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. It, this show is a little bro I I will definitely admit that, but, and being inquisitive isn't a bad thing. So I'm, I'm never one to fault people for doing things just because they want to learn more. But sometimes an issue I have with this show is Zach just seems kind of, Ooh, this is really cool. I want to learn more about this. And they don't really have anyone to follow up with, Hey, this is what's going on. So for the majority of people watching a lighthearted TV show, they're not going to do that additional outside research. So sometimes I wish there was like, you know what they did. There's a scene we're going to get into later where they talk about, um, waterfalls where there's that scene where they're talking to the guy who just started working at the park and he doesn't know a lot of the answers. So they overlay Zach just being like, Hey, we looked it up. Here's this. I wish the show as a whole did more of that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. But I I did think that this was a good episode. And before we get into that episode a little bit, 
should also add in one of the episodes, you can see my old apartment building in West Harlem. And I purposely did not look up when this was filmed. So I have some plausible deniability when I say I am in down to earth with Zac Efron. (laughs) (laughs) What are the odds? Wow. Yeah. Um, So moving on to that episode, the description says Zac and Darren travel to the land of fire and ice to learn about alternative energy and to see how a country is able to power itself from 100% renewable sources. So they kick off the episode and the series with Zach imitating David Attenborough and going to give it to him. It was decent. It was definitely not as good as your imitation. And that's why we come here for the Planet Today difference. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. And um, I can say myself that I think I was I was a little bit better. You definitely were. Um, But Zach (laughs) explains they're in Iceland where 100 percent of its electricity comes from heat, from subsurface volcanic activity and the force from its waterfalls. Iceland has a lot of geothermal activity throughout the country, which means they have abundant renewable energy. So start off by meeting a man named Siggy, who runs a wellness center across the lake from a volcano. And Siggy shows Zach and his co-host Darren how to bake rye bread by submerging a pot with dough under volcanic sands for about 24 hours. And he also shows them how to boil an egg for about 13 minutes. He says the sand gets to about 95 degrees Celsius, which is about... 200 degrees Fahrenheit. And Nick, I would love to try this bread. Iceland's on my bucket list, so maybe one day, man. But yeah, it looked so good. It looked fantastic. I was shocked when he said it tasted like chocolate, but I guess that's the earthiness from it just being <laughs> literally under volcanic sands. Yeah. Are, are you a rye guy by any chance? What's your, what's your take on rye bread? I'm a rye guy. I, I like rye. I wouldn't order like my toast rye. Um, I think I prefer my toast sourdough or just straight white. Okay. But those are my two. Yeah, I, I love sourdough. Rye's good, but my number one has to be pumpernickel. Oh, pumpernickel's underrated. Fantastic bread. It's it's my coarse German blood loving a coarse German bread. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was cool how they used the hot springs there to also heat the pavement along with making their food. Um So they don't have to shovel snow off of driveways and off of sidewalks in the winter. And with all of that volcanic activity, totally makes sense why they would do this. And honestly, I'm kind of jealous. Sometimes icy sidewalks can get pretty dicey. Yeah, definitely. And also just like not having to shovel your driveway in the winter. That's a that's a huge plus. That's a massive plus. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) So uh, after that, they go to a gap between tectonic plates. And this was super cool. Like whenever our show really takes off and we can do business trips to record our podcast in different spots. We should go to Iceland. That way we could record from two separate continents. And in reality, just be like, what, 30 yards apart from each other, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's where the Eurasian and North American tectonic plates divide. So yeah, we'll just do what they did and kind of just yell across the the gap. Like, Hey, Nick, I'm here. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we could do like a, a couple of cans and a, and a piece of string. <laughs> it would probably be so windy and the audio would sound terrible, but <laughs> the things we do for our listeners. Anything. We love you all so much. We're going to take a trip to Iceland. <laughs> How selfless of us. <laughs> so after that, they head to a geothermal power plant and they talk to two people who work there, Marta and Sandra, so they can better understand the process of geothermal heating. They explain that the plant has big rotors and rotor blades and steam from the earth spins giant 45 megawatt turbines with each turbine producing enough power for 45,000 homes. Wow. That is substantial. 
And I know what you might be thinking if you didn't watch the episode or if this part kind of went over your head. Hey, 45 megawatts of energy, there's got to be a lot of carbon emissions with that, right? And they actually explain that the plant does emit CO2 and hydrogen sulfide due to the volcanic magma activity below, but it only creates 3% of the emissions of traditional fossil fuels. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, it's like, look, if we were, this isn't going to happen overnight, but if tomorrow we woke up and we got 3% of our current carbon emissions instead of whatever we have now, look, that's... That's a minuscule amount of carbon. And they have a plan to even factor that out. So we'll we'll get into that after the next scene. But they leave the plant to go outside, and there's a bunch of electric vehicle charging stations. So they say they can utilize what nature gives you. And that's awesome. So not only is their plant where they're getting their geothermal power totally renewable, they're also using that energy to power the cars that it takes to get them to work. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, this is, Iceland is the most efficient country on Earth. If you are a fan of roundabouts in Iceland, then you must love efficiency as well. <laughs> Coincidentally, uh, I am now a big Iceland guy, and also I love efficiency. So, <laughs> And the Northern Lights. I'd love to see the, the Northern Lights. But anyway, they walk past the electric vehicle chargers, and they show these giant boreholes where carbon capture takes place. So basically, there's a tube that kind of pipes up the emissions, and then shoots it down into this porous rock. And it just kind of gets absorbed into those rocks and doesn't get a chance to harm the atmosphere. So it's super cool stuff. Like that 3% turns into 0% right there. And they say that this is something that can be done elsewhere and will hopefully be a part of the fight against climate change. Yeah, do you think this is something that we could bring to the US? Yes and no. I mean, carbon capture is useful. Uh, it's not as useful as a lot of people would like it to be. And it's also very costly. So there's a lot of people out there who kind of use carbon capture as this false argument and say, we don't need to lower our carbon emissions. We just need to capture the carbon. Right. And that's just not practical. That's way more expensive than anything else. And it's kind of just a bad faith argument. So I think carbon capture is part of the solution. But unfortunately, in, in U.S. politics, there are people that try to argue that it's not part of the solution. It is the solution. And whether for financial reasons or just practicality, it's simply not. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's part of it, but yeah. Interesting. So after that, Zach and Darren go to their hotel for a fire and ice massage, which starts off with them sitting in a cold tub, then switching to a hot tub. And then after that, they experience thermotherapy, which is hot stones, and cryotherapy, which is cold stones. And each of those have different bodily effects. This looks super relaxing. I love the way they utilize all of just the resources the earth is giving you for this natural, awesome experience. Uh, Personally, I would love to try something like that. And it sounds kind of similar to what you did a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so I went to this like hydrotherapy spa, and it is so freaking cool. Um, so there's a 55 degree, I don't know what the temperature of the, the cold tub that they had, but I, I can imagine it was probably somewhat similar to, to what we have. It was a 55 degree cold tub. And then, so you go into that for about a minute or a minute and a half if you can bear it. And 55 degrees does not sound that cold, 
But if you've ever done a polar plunge or anything like that, you know how cold that is. Yeah, 55 degrees is nice in the sun. It is not nice in the water. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's chilly. freezing. It's absolutely freezing. Yeah. So I knew what he was talking about when he's like, ow, like he got into the hot tub and he was like, ow, like it hurts. It really feels like there's like needles just all around your body, especially if you jump in like really quick. Um, but it's an awesome experience. I really, really, really recommend it to anyone who, who wants to try it out. Maybe uh, maybe that'll be our big recommendation for the listeners in 2022. Get yourself some hydrotherapy. Seriously, it's it's literally life altering. You feel like you've lost 10 pounds when you come out of there. Look, if you listen to the show, I know you're stressed. We're all stressed, whether it's because of things we talk about the show or whether the show is your escape. God bless you if it is. <laughs> you need a stress release and go get yourself a massage and some you deserve it some hydrotherapy yeah you earned it 2020 was a lot 2021 wasn't much better 2022 we are getting ourselves some hydrotherapy and some massages yes please all right so getting back into the show in the next scene we see them making some sustainable chocolate which again i would like to try the milk and sea salt are locally sourced the cacao beans are fair trade sustainably sourced and roasted on the premises and look i love chocolate I love sustainability, so this is about as up my alley as it gets. Nick, what's your take on chocolate? Uh, I'm hot and cold on it. Sometimes I love it, sometimes I crave it, sometimes I want nothing to do with it. Um, I like a very moist chocolate cake. I'm sorry for the people who don't like who who don't like the word moist. I'm sorry, um, but yeah, I'm a vanilla ice cream guy through and through. I like vanilla cakes as well. Um, yeah, I think I'm just more of a vanilla guy to be honest with you. Hey, that's all right. We got to balance each other out. I'm a huge chocolate guy. I love dark chocolate. But while we are on the topic of desserts, uh, shout out to, I forget which aunt it is, but one of your aunts makes a divine cheesecake. So yes, my aunt Ginger. Yes. Love you. Aunt love Ginger. you. Aunt Ginger. Unbelievable cheesecake. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. So once they leave that chocolate shop, they go to Gulfus to check out some breathtaking waterfalls. Iceland has over 10,000 waterfalls and only 10 of them are used for hydroelectric plants. So they're really balancing preserving nature's natural beauty with harnessing hydroelectric power through dams really well so far. And speaking of hydropower, they leave the waterfalls to head to Yulsefus power station, which is one of those 15 hydropower stations that combine to produce 75% of Iceland's electricity. The show explains that water creates constant pressure, which moves the turbines and creates electricity. So it was really cool to see how this process actually works. And I've been to a dam before for a hydroelectric tour during my grad school program, but this was infinitely more impressive and way more massive than just the one hydroelectric dam that I went to. Yeah, it's crazy how advanced their their systems are. Like It's super impressive that Iceland has gotten to the place that they are, and we're still like fumbling around with with our like our gas and oil yeah and i mean that's not a dig at iceland like they're they're a very advanced country but the u.s gdp is much higher like we can afford to do a lot of the stuff that they do on the other hand a lot of what they do is because of the natural resources that are available so for the u.s we don't have as much geothermal and we would want to rely on solar and wind and we can afford that and we can make that happen but from a tech standpoint, Iceland kind of shows there's really nothing stopping us from whatever you have using those resources to just get it done. Yeah. And I didn't mean to, I didn't mean that like as a dig. I meant that more like we have so many more people than them. Yeah. 
I don't know. We'll get there. <laughs> it was also really cool to watch them walk down the stairs all the way to the bottom of those vents and just see how massive this hydroelectric power plant actually was. Yeah, that was super cool. I forget how many stories they said it was. I think it was like four and a half Empire State Buildings, but look, one Empire State Building is is very, very tall. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after that tour, they go out to dinner at a restaurant called Dill, which uses all local ingredients for the food. And I found this really cool. Uh, Chef Carrie was the guy's name. And he serves them dung smoked lamb because there's not a ton of wood in Iceland. And then he serves them reindeer that he hunted himself. And the reindeer was actually part of a lottery system to maintain their population. So it was cool to see, you know, the restaurant using only stuff that's available there and really just taking that that farm to table approach to heart. Yeah, that was super cool. And reindeer, I I think I'll skip that. Um, But there was one dish that he he put out that was like, it looked like a bunch of leaves. And I was like, wow. That was the, um, there was berries on the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like the first thing he served them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they ate, they ate one of the leaves. He's like, it's very earthy. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I would try everything there, mostly because, I don't know, I, I've, I've eaten venison before, and I imagine reindeer is pretty similar to that. Um, also, I just, the idea of like somebody who goes out and, and hunts something and then uses every ounce of the animal so nothing's wasted, I'd hate to be the guy to be like, appreciate what you're doing, but no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a real art to that. There's actually another um, documentary. It's about this Italian dude. He lives in, um, I think he lives in Emilia Romagna. And he's, same thing. It's like, he's a butcher, basically. And he's all about using every part of the animal. Like, nothing can be wasted. And he treats, like, basically treats his animals like royalty. I, I love that approach. <laughs> Treat, treats them like royalty. And by that, you mean King Louis the 14th because he kills them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. But while they're alive, while they're alive, yeah. they are royalty. <laughs> All right. So after dinner, the next thing they go to is the Blue Lagoon, which gets its heat from nearby geothermal energy plants. And anyone who knows someone who's gone to Iceland has probably seen this on Instagram. So I found it really cool to see how the lagoon actually works. So Zach and Darren meet Albert Albertson, who's a mechanical engineer and a pioneer of the environmental and renewable energy movements. He said he grew up where nothing was wasted at home, and this got him interested in renewables after getting his engineering degree. He talks about how much wasted energy comes from refineries and how Resource Park, which is where Blue Lagoon is located, means changing our perspective and opening our minds. So the way that they use geothermal energy to power the park and heat the lagoon, it's found it very inspiring. Yeah, it was super cool. And it honestly, when they first showed it, I was like, okay, this looks like a water park. Like it looks like a straight up like lake compounds or something for all you New York <laughs> folks. Yeah. And it was cool. I mean, you know, I made that joke, but seriously, everyone that I know that's gone to Iceland, I know a couple of people, they've all gone to Blue Lagoon and they've all taken the picture with, you know, just their heads their head popping out of this pristine blue water. So it was really, really cool to see where that is, how it works, everything surrounding it. Yeah, it was super cool to see all that. All right, so it's kind of important to bring up the history of Iceland and how, you know, renewable energy and geothermal heat, it makes sense for them, but it wasn't always there. Iceland relied on imported coal and oil in the 1970s. And their renewable energy transition didn't happen immediately, but it worked. The fact that Iceland went 
100% renewable in under 50 years really gives me hope for the world in the next 30. 2050 is going to sneak up on us a lot quicker than we think, but it's not too late to transition to a carbon-free future. Yeah, I mean, this this does give you hope, and I know obviously Iceland is not even close in size to the U.S., but um, it does give you hope that if we we all contribute, we can we can seriously make a change for for the better. Yeah, and you got to think that where we are now, it's a little bit ahead of where Iceland was in 1970. So we have that head start. So there's no reason to think that what they did in 50 years we can't do in 20 or 30 at the very latest. And also we can help out other countries get to where they need to get to if they don't have the money or the technology to get there themselves. So I don't know. I just seeing seeing where they are now compared to where they were, all I could feel was hope. Yeah, definitely. And like we have the infrastructure, we have the know-how on on how to fix a lot of these issues. We just need to be proactive and actually do something about it. Yeah. And the episode closes with Zach discussing how change has to start somewhere. And even if it's a little bit uncomfortable at first, if the change is for the better, it's worth it. Before we close things out for the day, next same three questions we close out all of our reviews with. Number one, what was the most impactful scene for you? Yeah, you know, this was kind of an interesting one because I didn't feel like I found anything too impactful. It was more just kind of like a couple buddies joking around and 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 walking about the town. Um, so I can't say anything was too impactful. I, I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't call anything specifically um, impactful. Yeah, that's definitely a fair take. And I think that kind of speaks to some of the criticisms of the show that it's a little bit bro-y. Um, so, you know, you're definitely not alone in that. <laughs> For me, I would say that the most impactful scene came during the tour of the hydropower plant. Zach said a quote that just kind of stuck with me, and it's, electricity is easy to take for granted. I just assume that when I flip a switch, the lights will come on. But this place gives me a much greater appreciation for what it takes to make electricity. And that's something that you and I have kind of talked about before on the show, but I find it really cool to see where your electricity actually comes from, especially when it's coming from a carbon-free source. And that's part of why I love solar so much. Yeah, that that's a great point, Matt. And Honestly, now I feel like I should have said something for the impactful scene. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. All right. So what was your key takeaway for this episode as a whole? Yeah, mine was pretty simple. It's just a sustainable carbon-free society is just better. Uh, Albert Albertson kind of summed it up best for me when he talks about a zero-waste society. And he said, this is not science. This is common sense. And it reminded me of, I went to the People's Climate March in D.C. I want to say it was 2016. And somebody held up a sign that this, his quote kind of reminded me of. And the sign said, what if all the scientists are wrong about climate change and all we do is make a better society for nothing? <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's common sense. Yeah. I think my key takeaway was um, I didn't know how advanced Iceland was. And I, I like, it's so cool that they are, a hundred percent, you know, renewable energy. And it, it just kind of also made me want to just travel there one day. I don't know. Let's do it. Let's check out the Northern lights. <laughs> yeah, seriously. All right. Last one on a scale of wouldn't recommend to, I loved it. What would you rate this episode of down to earth with Zach Efron? <sighs> I would give it a lukewarm. I liked it. Um, and it's because 
it's because there's a lot of other good TV on there right now. Um, and I can't, I can't say for sure that this is your best bet, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of good TV out there. <laughs> so, so your, your rating is I liked it, but I'm not going to turn off Peaky Blinders for it. <laughs> there's no chance. There's no way I'm picking yeah. this show over Peaky Blinders or The Sopranos. Yeah, I, I liked it personally. Uh, I watched the whole first season last year. I'm definitely going to watch season two whenever it comes out. And I know they started production this past March, so who knows. But something that I'm really hopeful to see is that maybe season two can fix some of the environmental and climate justice issues that we brought up before. And look, if not, this is a show that I can watch and kind of take it with a grain of salt and do my own independent research on the places that are showcased in each episode. Because if it's anything like season one, they're going to go to some cool places and have some cool experiences that are going to make you think, wow, that's pretty neat. Um, but they're not really going to do uh, a good job of highlighting some of the things that the local people experience. Yeah, I agree. I think they just need to delve in a little bit more to what the everyday man or woman is is going through in, in these places that they're they're traveling to. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, we will talk about some quick hits before airing my interview with Sophie Phillips. Sophie won Miss Delaware this year and will be competing in the Miss America competition, which starts the day the episode drops next Friday. Until then, you could share the show with a friend or two who you think will like it or share the show with three friends who you don't think will like it because maybe one of them you will be wrong about. If you have any questions, comments, story recommendations, or potential guests, send those our way on our socials or through email. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you're able to. And we would also love it if you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Planet Today Pod, or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace! Peace!